0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to read most of it. And we're going to start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if we have hoped in Christ in this, if we have hope in Christ in this life only we are of all men most to be pitied Skipping down to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. And when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And then down to verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps a wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the, the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown and dishonored. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so, are, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture and for the comfort it is to us. Lord, we do pray now that you would turn your white, hot searchlight of Scripture on our heart and reveal to us sins to repent of. We also pray that it would be a balm to us, strengthen us in our labors here as we look forward to that life everlasting where everything will be redeemed and made perfect. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So to catch us up on verse 12, uh, catch us up to verse 12 in verses 1 through 11. Paul summarizes the gospel. He does so to remind and warn. He wants to remind the Corinthians of all the essentials of the gospel message and warn them not to depart from those essentials. In uh, verse 1, he says, This is the gospel by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But that is what was happening at Corinth. They were rejecting an essential of the gospel, the resurrection of the body. And therefore, Paul was concerned that they had believed in vain. So in verse 12, he asks, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There were Christians in the Corinthian church denying the bodily resurrection of believers. And that, of course, is a rejection of the gospel. Back in verses 3 and 4 of the same chapter, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He then goes on to list all the people who saw the resurrected Jesus in his glorified body. The resurrection was witnessed by hundreds of people, including all the apostles, and it was a major feature of all apostolic preaching from day one. Uh, matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before the Jews and said, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ and he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we all are witnesses. Paul preached the same message. He proclaimed it all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, throughout his missionary journeys. matter of fact, when Paul is arrested in the final chapters of Acts, he says, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, How is it that you claim to believe the gospel, but you reject the resurrection of believers? Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. That's central to the gospel. It's what I've been preaching to you. So there's a little disgust and dismay in the tone of the apostle here. It's as if he's saying you reject the resurrection of the dead. What are you talking about? That's madness. You can feel it there. How do you say that? How quickly we turn from orthodoxy, Luther believed, I think it was Luther, he used to say to his congregation that they were always a sermon or two away from apostasy. And we find that hard to believe. But take note of the Corinthians. Are we so much better than them? Are, they our, are we their superiors? Or is there a tendency at work in them that is also at work in us? And I choose the latter. I think Luther's right. Our faith is much more fragile than we realize The space between us and the Corinthians isn't the gulf we'd like it to be. It's more like a ditch. This is why we must take great care with our souls. We must hold fast to the word of God, or we'll be swept away by sin and false doctrine. Don't think highly of yourself. Quite the opposite. You should always be suspicious of yourself. The Corinthians are a warning to us. Take the counsel of Kierkegaard, who advises when you read God's word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, it's talking to me and about me. We all are in danger of heterodoxy. Therefore, hold fast. Scripture is a beautiful unity. Its doctrine is like a wooden canoe, though. You remove one board, and the whole ship starts to sink. So it is with the resurrection of the believers. Denying this doctrine has massive consequence. In the next few verses, Paul forces the Corinthians to see the consequence of their position. Uh, Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. If the resurrection is an impossibility, a blanket impossibility, then Jesus can't have been resurrected. This would mean that the apostolic preaching was based on pure fiction, and not actual historical events. It's always good to remember that the word gospel means good news. It's referring to actual events that happen in history that are good, that change things. So if, if it didn't happen, the whole thing's just a fairy tale and a myth. And that denial reduces their preaching to vanity. One commentator put it well. He said the whole structure would crumble because there would be no guarantee that anything Christ was or did, lasted beyond his death. There would be no evidence that his sacrifice had been accepted by God or that life beyond death exists. Massive consequence. Your faith is vain if this is true. He goes on. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he was raised, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So if the resurrection's not true... Then the apostles are a bunch of liars and con men that can't be trusted. That's what that would mean. Again, Jesus being raised from the dead was a central part of their message. It comes up all the time. Remember on Mars Hill? He brings it up and that's what they mock him for. If you deny resurrection, you deny the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, then the whole message becomes suspect as it's founded on a lie. You can't pick and choose your parts of Scripture. You can't pick and choose your part of the gospel. They all matter. It all fits together. Certainly, there's things that are more clear than other things. But you have to believe, the the entirety of Scripture. It is sufficient. It is true. It is authority over you. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sin. Faith is as only good as its object. In John chapter 2, the Jews asked Jesus, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking of the temple of his body so when he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which jesus had spoken jesus has zero authority if he didn't rise from the dead it would mean that he wasn't sent by the father it would mean that his death on the cross was worthless that it would mean that his body is just rotting away somewhere like every other false teacher throughout time. It would mean that you are still in your sins. Faith placed in a failed and fake Messiah is worthless faith. has no value. Which would mean, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. No resurrection of Christ means everything uh, every, every Christian that had ever died, died believing a lie. They took their last breath, then nothing. Nothing happened. No heaven, no glory, no eternity, no being with your creator. Just nothing. Gone. And that's depressing, isn't it? Which is why Paul says in verse 19, If we have, hoped in, if we have hope in Christ in this life only... We are of all men the most to be pitied. What a pathetic religion Christianity would be if Christ hadn't rose from the dead. To suffer for the gospel? To deny your flesh? To lose friends and family only for it to mean nothing? For it to turn out that all of this was mere make-believe? That's pitiful. If there is no resurrection... Then get while the getting is good, because that is all there is. That is the consequence of rejecting the resurrection of believers. Its ramifications are dire. The resurrection of believers is a cardinal doctrine. One, one worthy to die over. One that can embolden you to die, right? You're going to be raised again. But you've got you to wonder... Now, the Corinthians were a direct product of Paul's ministry. They had good teachers, including Paul himself, but also men like Timothy and Apollos. So how can they say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Was it just an outright denial? Or was there some twisted logic behind rejecting such a foundational doctrine? And you'll find that most people come up with some weird rationale to work their way around doctrines. They don't just outright deny them. They... They're crafty. Well, the resurrection of the body was a doctrine that many rejected in the ancient world. You'll remember that the Sadducees, a small but politically influential sect of the Jews, rejected the resurrection of the dead. According to Josephus, the Sadducees uh, held a few key tenets. One, they said there is no fate. They said God does not commit evil. Man has free will. Man has the free choice of good or evil. There are no rewards or penalties after death. The soul is not immortal. There is no afterlife. It's the key parts of their belief systems. So in other words, you're in control of your destiny. Make the best choices you can now that benefit you because there's no heaven or hell. There's just a now. Live to enjoy this life now, more or less. And you can see how the doctrine of the resurrection upends uh, their whole system of thought. If you are raised from the dead, that means there is another life To consider, it means that the soul is immortal, and at the very least implies a coming judgment. This is why in Matthew 22, the Sadducees attempt to stump Jesus. Never a good idea to try to stump your creator. They try to stump him with a question that they thought would demonstrate the illogic of the resurrection of the dead. They say, teacher, teacher. (laughs) Moses said, if a man dies having no children... His brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left, his wife to his brother. Uh, so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. And I, I love Jesus' answer. And you're mistaken not understanding the scripture nor the power of God. In other words, you don't know the Bible or the God of the Bible. There is Jesus with that tone, always that tone. The tone police would not care for that sort of answer, would they? They would say, Jesus, you don't know what I've read. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. How dare you make such an unloving statement? I don't know the Bible. I don't know God. And yet he did it. And it wasn't because he read their mind. Their question revealed their heart. It revealed their ignorance and spiritual deadness. Not every question is sincere. People often use questions as a passive-aggressive way to attack individuals and ideas, and do so while posturing humility. I was just asking. Just trying to understand. Whoa, whoa. Why are you getting so defensive, man? I'm just asking a question. No, you weren't. Some questions are accusations. So it was here, and so it can be with us. But Jesus is no fool. He knows what's in man and goes right after him. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The patriarchs didn't just turn to dust. Their bodies might have by now, but not their souls. A soul wasn't like a flame, it can't be extinguished. It's immortal. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Their souls are with God. In the mind of Jesus, this implies not only an afterlife, but resurrection. Man wasn't made to be a mere soul, he's a body and a soul. Therefore, the immortality of the soul means there is some future point where the body will be reunited with the soul. So it could be that the Corinthians subscribed to the doctrine of the Sadducees, but it's probably unlikely that's what was going on here. The Sadducees were a small group, and though politically influential, not religiously influential, and it's doubtful that they had any major influence all the way out in Corinth. Also, there's a much more likely culprit here, Corinth was located in Greece, and its residents were heavily influenced by Greek thought. That whole area was, but especially Corinth. The Greeks held to an almost opposite view of the Sadducees. The Sadducees ultimately reduced the spirit to the body to the extent that if the body dies, so does the spirit. The Greeks, on the other hand, saw man as a spirit trapped in a body. This idea... Uh, was famously captured in the Greek phrase, I think I'm saying this right, soma sima, which translates body prison. It's the idea that the body is the prison of the soul. And it was made famous by Plato, who wrote, being ourselves pure and not entombed in this which we carry about us, called the body, in which we are imprisoned like an oyster in its shell. So they didn't deny the immortality of the soul. They denied the goodness of the body. This is often referred to as dualism. It creates a radical divide between the spirit and the body. It says that the real you is the inner you, your spirit, not your body. In essence, it teaches that spirit is good and matter is evil. You could say that redemption in this thinking uh, means being freed from the body. The ideal state is that of an androgynous, disembodied spirit. In Greek thought, all people started out uh, androgynous. Uh, I think this is probably what the Corinthians believed. But they were wrong. You look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. He has been raised from the dead. And its reality has consequences. Namely, it demolishes the false teaching of the Sadducees and the Greeks. It demonstrates that the soul survives death. And the body is good. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits Of those who are asleep. Now, I spent some time on a farm as a child, and we had huge gardens, and I knew what it meant when I saw that first ripe blackberry. It meant there were gonna be a whole lot more blackberries that I could eat. Um, So, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit before the great harvest. One pastor said it well Christ's resurrection set in motion the inevitable process by which all God's ransomed people will be raised uh, with at the end. So those asleep in Christ haven't perished. They're with God, and a day is coming when all the dead in Christ will be raised in a body just like him. Verse 21 and 22, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So these verses, we find a contrasting of Adam and Christ. Uh, The second Adam, it's very similar to Romans 5. Uh, In Romans 5, it says, Romans 5.15, For by the transgression of one man, the many died, much more did the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So that's really dealing with our spiritual death, so to speak. Uh, We died in Adam, and all the elect are made alive in Christ. Something similar is being done here in this contrast, but it focuses on the physical side of things. This is clearly speaking of physical death, disease, decay, um, death, all that entered the world when mankind fell in the garden. Our bodies, as I'm sure you all know, are breaking down. We feel this every morning, at least I do. You know, I thought maybe it's the mattress, but I don't think it is. I don't think if I buy one of those special purple mattresses, they're a big deal. At least on Facebook, they're targeting me. So they're hearing me talk about my sore back. Um, Just getting older. So I wake up sore in the morning, but some of you feel that way all day long. Bad backs, bad intestines, feeling eyes, and so forth. We are wearing down and falling apart. And this can lead some of us to believe that the body is, in fact, a prison. It kind of feels like one. Even the great John Calvin repeatedly and wrongly referred to the body as a prison. He did so because of his intense health problems, a lot of pain, I think we all can sympathize. The body isn't a prison to be freed from. It's an increasingly tattered tent in need of renovations. This is one reason we we look forward to the end of the age. I'll just read these again. I'm not going to go too much in detail here. But in uh, the latter half of verse 24, then comes the end. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. At the end of the age, death will be dealt a final blow, and we will be reunited with our bodies, and it will be glorious. Now Paul anticipates two questions. So skip down to verse 35. He says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And he answers the first question concisely. You fool! God made the world from nothing. He split the Red Sea. He brought water from a rock. He made the sun uh, stand still in the sky. He rose Jesus from the dead. Nothing is impossible for God. What a foolish question. You know how people say there's no such thing as dumb questions? It's not biblical. There are such things as dumb questions. How can God do that? He's God. He's God. God can do anything. Now comes a second question, though, and it's a good one. And with what kind of body do they come? Is the resurrection something like being a zombie? You know? Are, the raised, are we raised in bodies that break down like the ones that we had? If so, that's not much hope. Paul says, That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory, glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So our body is like a seed. A seed dies and then springs to life and takes on a very different form. It's the same substance, but with different qualities. Um, you ever see a watermelon seed? Look at a little tiny watermelon seed. You're always scared if you swallowed one, the watermelon you know, would grow in your belly. Yeah, I mean, it, you, this, everything that a watermelon can be is in that seed. So the substance, but the qualities it takes on are different. That's the point. Between the various types of fleshes in glory, he says here, there's, you know, fish are like this, and these animals are like that, and that star is like this. There's going to be a change, a change in glory, a change in quality, but not in substance. Our, our catechism says the self-same body, right? The, the body that, that rose with Jesus was his old body. It had the scars on it. Your body is going to be the one that's, that's raised. And then you say, well, how? What about the people that have been dead for millions of, well, millions, thousands of years? Okay, sorry. Wildcrats gets me again. Um, but uh, but um, what about those that were burned, you know, died in Hiroshima and turned to just a, a shadow on the cement? What about those guys? How can it be the same body? How can something come from nothing? I don't know. Why is this hard? God's God. He's, it's the same body. He's going to do it. It's going to be amazing. but It's going to be different. Um, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown as a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. Our new body is a glorified body. Unlike our old body, it doesn't perish. It isn't weak. It's perfect. Everything is perfect about it. No more pain. No more Crohn's disease. No more food allergies. None of that. It's gone. No more death. This is wonderful. That's why the world's so empty. They got nothing. Nothing. They can only, like, solve a problem for a moment. There's a certain guru that I'm a, I know that likes to talk about masculinity, but he refuses to talk about death. And that's because he doesn't know what to do with it. He only knows how to talk about pleasure now. He's no view for the eternal. It makes, him, it makes him depressed. As it ought. As it ought. Because there is a resurrection of the of the wicked as well. Now Paul calls it a spiritual body. So you might think, the see, it is an androgynous spirit. Well a spiritual body. Okay. It's still a body. Um, that doesn't mean it's a spirit. It simply means it takes on the nature of Jesus' glorified body. So also it is written that the first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam Jesus became a life-giving spirit. So whatever that means, it means that he, is, he still has a body. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So the natural is that nature of Adam, and the spiritual is that nature of Jesus. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will bear the image of the heavenly. So we, we descended from Adam, our federal head, and therefore we had a body like his. But in the resurrection, we experience a change as Jesus is our federal head. And consequently, our body becomes like him. Just as we bore the image of the earthy man, I always want to say earthly, but it says earthy. I looked. That's what it says. Just as we bore the uh, image of the earthy, earthy men or man, Adam, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Thus, our bodies will be spiritual, meaning made in such a way that they are completely under the control of the Spirit and also able to be in the presence of God. Our body is going to go under some incredible change so we can be in that heavenly realm where Jesus is right now. Right? Jesus has a body, and he's with God wherever that is. Now, there's going to be a redemption of all things, and our future is physical, but our body is going to go under a change, uh, under a qualitative change, so we can be uh, with the Lord. In verse 50, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, inherit the, imperish- the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. God will change our tattered tent into a heavenly mansion. And we'll be able to be with them, and that's awesome. So let me end this way. I want to echo um, something from our church's commitments. If you haven't read our commitments, they're really good. Go on our website. There's never been a time in the history of the church where God's truth has not been under attack. However, the attack isn't always at the same point. In the time of Athanasius, the battle raged over the doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ. In the time of Augustine, the battle was over the doctrine of sin or what came to be called total depravity. In the time of the Reformation, men like Calvin, Luther, contended with the Roman Catholic Church for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the time of Machen, the battle was engaged over the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Each generation of the Church needs to discern those particular areas in which the demonic and the heretical have decided to focus their attacks. So, what's our issue today? Where is the battle of most fierce? Well, I believe today the church is facing a vicious attack on biblical anthropology. Anthropology, what it means to be man, the doctrine of man. And that uh, is where it's happening. If you survey the issues that are crippling society in the church, you'll find they all can be traced back to this doctrine manhood and womanhood, abortion and uh euthanasia, euthanasia uh, man. fornication, adultery, and divorce headship submission, fatherhood, fatherlessness, fruitfulness, and contraceptive, uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction, female ordination. Where you land on all these topics is determined by your doctrine of man, by your anthropology. And there may be many ways in which this doctrine has been and can be twisted, but there's two opposite but equal false anthropological errors that we already talked about this morning. The first one is man is a body-trapped spirit. This is where our human nature is divorced from our biological nature. I'd argue that this is an assumption that runs deep in modern Christianity and has contributed to all the sexual chaos that's being experienced across denominations. It's, it's the modern version of the Greek idea. And then there's man as a biological machine. This is where our human nature is reduced to our biological nature, our appetites and impulses. Basically, man's just a machine programmed by evolution to have certain desires. It only falls in that there is nothing wrong with embracing our natural inclinations. This error doesn't deny the body, but the spirit. All man is, is a body. It's not corrupted. Freedom in this system is surrendering to your nature. Therefore, if it feels good, if it serves your desires, then do it. That's basically the modern version of the Sadducees, when you get right down to it. One error denies the goodness of the body and defines redemption as the soul's freedom from the body. The other error denies the reality of the soul and sees no need for the body's redemption. Both are wrong. Both are an attack on biblical anthropology and therefore undermine the gospel. Both must be rejected because they rob us of hope. And God of glory, the resurrection sows this doctrine to be false. You're not a mere soul. You're not a mere body. You're a soul and a body. So listen to Romans 6 then. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So fight for holiness in this life. A day is coming when that struggle, when that struggle to use your body to serve God, it'll be gone. The mortal, this mortal corrupted body will be perfected and glorified. This is the hope of the Resurrection. It's a glorious doctrine that should strengthen you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise that we will be changed. That you will make us like your son so we can be with you forever. And this suffering down here, this physical suffering, this spiritual suffering, this battle between the spirit and the flesh will come to an end. And we will be free to glorify you forever, free to serve you, unhindered by temptation. We'll be able to walk the way we ought to walk. We'll be able to see the way we ought to see. It'll be even better than we've ever experienced down here, Lord. We look forward to it, and we thank you. And ask, Lord, that we now would go and serve you with our body and give you glory. In your son's name, amen.